To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, we begin this episode with the plight of young people in England as the Children's Commissioner is calling on Boris Johnson to put children centre stage in plans to level up the nation following the pandemic. In her final speech after a six-year tenure, Anne Longfield is expected to accuse the Treasury of institutional bias against children, with only around a billion pounds being committed to pupil catch-up. Well, Longfield says the past year will have been particularly difficult for those already struggling. For those kids that parents couldn't stay at home, they needed to go out to work. They maybe don't have the tech there. They're in cramped accommodation. And there's already things going on in the household that make it difficult, possibly domestic violence and the like. Well, the government says protecting vulnerable children is at the heart of its virus response. Now, in the second half of the programme, we're going to be talking about equality, which is at the heart of a lot of the issues to do with young people. We're going to be talking to the TUC's specialist on equality issues. But first, let's talk about the mayoral elections, which are coming up later uh, this year. In fact, on May the 6th, although arrangements for the elections are still to be determined in the pandemic that we have, Sadiq Khan will, of course, be defending his record as mayor. And among his challengers will be the Liberal Democrat mayoral candidate for London, Louisa Porritt. Uh, Louisa is currently a Camden councillor, former MEP for Renew Europe, and joins us now. Louisa, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. I mean, first, a point I think will occur to a lot of people, is it actually a wise idea to hold elections under these circumstances? Thank you, Roger. Well, I, I've said all along that we need to leave it up to the judgment of public health experts. So if they have indeed advised the government that there's a safe way to conduct the election and the election can go ahead, uh, the government has decided that the election's going to go ahead. So that's where we are. Um, what we're doing is encouraging voters to apply for a postal vote um, because we don't know what the arrangements will be like on the day yet. And of course, um, the idea of queuing at a polling booth and social distancing is, is a little bit tricky. Um, mm. So just in case, it's safest to get a postal vote. Um, but the elections are going ahead, so it's out of my hands. <laughs> OK, uh, well, yes, I've had my uh, request to submit my postal uh, request to come through the letterbox. I'm a Camden resident myself, Louisa, so uh-huh. I'm keen to understand what you might offer my borough, but also London as mayor. Yeah, well, my campaign is focusing on three main issues. Uh, the primary one is housing because the current Mayor of London has not delivered the affordable housing that he promised. He's only achieved um, half of the start 
on homes uh, that he said he would. And those are just starts. So um, my campaign is about um, embracing the changes that have been brought about by the pandemic. Obviously not the negative ones, but seeing um, the opportunities in the trend of homeworking, for example. So because lots of people are going to be working from home or at least part working from home, part working from the office in future, we're going to have empty office space in the centre of London. And I think that's a real once-in-a-generation opportunity to finally tackle our housing crisis by building homes in the heart of the city, converting that unused space into quality, affordable, zero-carbon homes. Um, but, but Louisa, yes. if I can just interrupt you, because one, one of the aspects of what you're talking about there, which is the different uh, forms of working life, if you like, that, that have come mm-hmm. about, and I suppose it's an open question as the extent to which they will continue afterwards. But if they do, one of the biggest problems that Sadiq Khan's had to deal with is the question of transport for London, just even the financial basis of it. If people are not using it in the same way or to the same extent, how can it even function? What would you do about transport for London? Well, you've touched on a really key issue there, Roger, which is that I do think in the short term, the government should be stepping in to support London's public transport system. They've given guarantees to private rail companies outside of London for the duration of the pandemic. And London's transport system, which is vital to the economy as a whole, um, should be supported as well. But you're absolutely right that there's a fundamental challenge to the funding model of TfL in that um, at the moment it relies on income from fares and given our working patterns are changing and Londoners aren't going to be moving about the capital in the same way in future, um, we can expect that fare income isn't going to be the same as it was in the past. So we need a plan for that. And my plan is that we should introduce a smart road pricing scheme Um, So this would be a London-wide system that um, basically raises revenue based on things like length of journey, um, type of vehicle, level of emissions that that produces. It's a much fairer and greener um, way of raising revenue and Mm. and funding our transport system. But hang on, how does that work with the ultra-low emission zone, which is already going to raise you know, significant amounts of money from the few brave motorists who will be left after the cycle lanes and road use changes? Well, the Liberal Democrats have always supported the ULEZ on the principle that it, it, it's a measure to improve our air quality. On the other hand, ULEZ only covers part of London and this would be a scheme that's London-wide so you're not disproportionately taxing any Londoners more than others Um, and it's more progressive because it's reflecting things like the length of journey that you're making rather than because you just happen to clip that zone if you see what I mean so I think we need um, a much more future-facing model for financing and, and that's what I would be proposing. Lisa, let me talk to you about the issue of security. I think it's in front and centre of a lot of people's minds at the moment, given the rash of stabbings that have taken place in the capital uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, The police claim to be dealing with it as best they can, but is this a moment really where whoever is in charge of London, the mayor in this instance, should be pushing forward initiatives to try to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, it's an extremely complex issue, uh, the reasons why we have youth violence. And... I don't think it can be tackled through enforcement alone. Of course, policing is important. And I think 
what's really been missing over the last decade or so is that community policing presence. Um, officers who are rooted in their local neighbourhoods, who know the communities, who can gather intelligence, who are trusted by local communities and, and can help um, prevent incidents from occurring and, and find out more as to why they are when they've happened. Um, so it's really important that we restore that so that people feel safer again on the streets in their local areas. Mm. Um, but also we need to tackle the root causes of why this is happening. And that's much more complex. It's to do with things like poverty and inequality. And actually the huge cuts we've seen in the number of youth centres, not just in London, but nationally, has had an impact on um, the, the lack of options available to vulnerable young people. Um, so one of the things I would seek to be doing as part of my um, vision for reinventing our high streets and our neighbourhoods is making sure that areas are much more responsive to the services that local communities need. And one of those, I think, is providing more youth services locally and making sure that every area in London, each of its 600 neighbourhoods, has that available, among other things like childcare services. Um, are the Liberal Democrats a safe pair of hands um, in the role of Mayor of London, given that it's going to be a critical rebuilding phase for London, facing the pandemic still, but also um, trying to deal with Brexit? And at the moment, it looks like it's really a two-horse race between Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey. Well, I reject the notion that it's a two-horse race between the Labour and Conservative candidates, because... The Conservative candidate is miles behind the current mayor, so he's not a real challenger. And that means there's room for an alternative challenger in this race, and I believe I'm that person. As for whether the Liberal Democrats are a safe pair of, ha safe pair of hands, absolutely I think we can be. Um, we actually came top in London the last time we had a PR election, which I think... Um, which was the European elections. I think that reflects the fact London is a Liberal city. There are lots of people out there who want to vote Liberal Democrat, but in a first-past-the-post electoral system like what we have for general elections, people often feel that they can't, so they vote for their least worst option. They don't have to do that in this election because they get a first and second preference. So if they want to keep the Conservative candidate out, by all means, they can put Sadiq Khan but, second. But I would invite them to put me number one on the ballot paper. Well, yeah, but you're saying this at a time when nationally, at least, the Lib Dems almost have disappeared. I mean, you're behind the Greens in one or two of the latest polling uh, targets. So are you still relevant? Well, regardless of the national picture, we're actually polling quite well in London. Uh, I am polling third ahead of the Greens right now. Um, and the Liberal Democrats are pulling on around 14% in London, so that's much higher than our national average. I think that shows we're still serious players in the capital. Um, and like I said, people can afford to vote Liberal Democrat in this election without worrying about letting in um, somebody that they, they don't want. And I think you also hit on a really important point there, which is about what, what is this election yeah. about? And uh, what are we voting for? Well, mm -hmm. I'm the only candidate who has consistently talked about our recovery beyond the mm -hmm. pandemic. And I believe I have a concrete plan to help boost London's economy and make sure yeah. that, that there are jobs for the future and that there are opportunities for young people, including affordable housing, so that they continue to live and work here. Mm -hmm. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, let's go to a key subject that's really crucial at the moment, which is the unequal impact of the pandemic. It's been a theme from the start. The TUC, Amnesty International, Save the Children, the Fawcett Society and others have written a joint letter calling on the Equality and Human Rights Commission to investigate whether the government's broken equality law during the pandemic. It all comes after a damning report from the Women and Equalities Committee of MPs earlier in February, which said government policies have repeatedly skewed towards men and that the government needs to start actively analysing and assessing the equality impact of every policy. Well, joining us now is Sean Elliott, who is the Women's Equality Policy Officer at the Trades Union Congress. Sean, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, look, the government is quoted in The Guardian as saying that every department considers equality impacts in their policy making and that an equalities assessment of the Coronavirus Act was published last year. So what's the problem? We think there is clear evidence that the government haven't complied with the quality law and taken all of the necessary measures and actions to make sure that the policies they're implementing, the decisions they're making, are not disproportionately disadvantaging or discriminating against women. For example, we've seen with the self-employment income support scheme, women who've taken maternity leave in the three years Uh, that they use to calculate uh, how much financial support you're entitled to. If you've taken maternity leave during that time, you're treated as though you've taken holiday. Men are not in that situation. This is a clear policy that discriminates against women because they've had to take maternity leave. um, I've got many other examples of where we know that the government haven't considered the impact of their actions and are overlooking the needs of women. But, Sean, I suppose the question then is, what is it that the, that the EHRC can do? What would you expect them to do in these circumstances? So the EHRC has the power to investigate whether the government have complied with equality law, and if not, to enforce it, to make sure that they're taking all the necessary actions. Equality impact assessments are really important. You need to look at what's going on with your policies, who may be disproportionately impacted. But it's not enough just to say, oh, yes, we know that women or that black workers will be disproportionately impacted. You then have to mitigate those risks. And what we want the EHRC to do is go in and investigate to see whether the government has not only completed the necessary assessments, but made sure they've put in changed policies, adjusted them to make sure they're not disproportionately harming women. And we Mm. think at the moment we've seen no evidence that that's being done. Okay. Um, The Bank of England policymaker Silvana Tenrero has also said something similar, that the coronavirus Mm. pandemic may prove to be detrimental to many women's careers and pay. Why do you think that the government has been so poor on issues of the unequal impact of the pandemic when it's something that has been repeated both on the economic front and on the health front itself many, many times over months? 
it's hard to understand. I'm not sure whether it's willful ignorance or something else, because we know that there's lots of evidence being produced to them about the impact, for example, on maternal employment. We're seeing one in five women have told us, we did a survey of 52,000 working mums, one in five told us they're having to reduce their hours at work or drop out of the workplace altogether because they're struggling to balance work and childcare. And what we think is those that are in government that are making these decisions, they don't have a gender lens and that's what needs to be taken. Yes, it's important to have women in the room and we know that women are severely underrepresented in the Cabinet, but also it's about taking that gender lens and everybody has a responsibility for that and making sure you're looking at and thinking about the different experiences and needs of different groups. Women are much more likely to have unpaid care responsibilities than men because of the unequal way we divide domestic Mm. chores and and childcare. And so it needs to be thought about. And what's happening at the moment is it's just not being thought about by those with power. I suppose one could make the point, Sean, that people in very desperate circumstances, government ministers, really trying to deal with an unprecedented problem... uh, I suppose, you know, it's forgivable maybe if that wasn't the top thing in their list of, of, of necessities when they were thinking about policies, that equality went to the bottom. I think that at the start, this was an unprecedented, it was a fast-moving crisis, but of course there are some times when things will be forgotten about or put to the side, but actually we're almost a year in now and these policies are still in place. For example, from the, since the first day of the crisis, we highlighted that two million workers are not eligible for statutory sick pay because of the qualifying threshold. And of those 2 million workers, 70% are women, many of them working in low-paid roles in the health and social care sector. It's a huge public health issue if women who might be unwell are thinking, well, is this a cough or a sniffle? Do I still go to work or not? And if they're not going to get that statutory sick pay, they're going to be thinking about, well, if I don't go to work, I can't keep a roof over my children's head. I can't keep food on the table. So I think at the start, we were somewhat forgiving. But there's a legal duty that's been in place since 2007. This isn't something new, and it should be built into the way governments work, whether they're in crisis or not. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Sean Elliott, who is the Women's Equality Policy Officer at the Trades Union Congress. Roger, I think this is a huge issue. It's not just the TUC, but a whole host of organisations sort of banding together, trying to get the government's attention on you know, dealing with uh, inequality because it's thought that this could have a very, very long tail in terms of the impact on women's careers if they've had to delay or you know had to drop out of the workforce and so on that this could have a big impact on UK growth going forwards for a long time. Yes, and it's, it's something that that, uh, that perhaps has been pushed to one side mm. and perhaps a signal that we're going back in a way to perhaps what many people think is more normal politics where the things that were not thought about should be thought about and the, uh, the inequalities that came as a result of this then need to be uh, addressed. Anyway, let's talk about uh, a couple of other stories that uh, are in the news today in the politics area just to bring people up to speed with what's going on. And first of all, Caroline, we're talking about testing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the government says that mass testing is a key part of the plan for easing coronavirus lockdown rules. UK media are reporting that Boris Johnson will announce a surge in the rollout of lateral flow kits on Monday to help stop clusters of cases forming. The idea is to find people who are COVID positive but don't have symptoms. Roger, this is just another one of the possibilities um, in terms of what we may hear on Monday when Boris Johnson has promised to lay out the roadmap to unwinding, unlocking Britain as the vaccine rollout continues apace. But the problem, of course, is the lateral flow tests do seem to have, let's call it mixed results, Mm. Uh, certainly some doubt as to their effectiveness or accuracy. So that, I think, could be a big factor in talking about that. And then also there's the issue of bringing vaccines to people who otherwise will stand almost no chance of getting them. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, is going today going to urge the United Nations to agree on a resolution in which they call for negotiated ceasefires to allow people in war zones to receive virus vaccines. If we can just see a window of opportunity to reach those really vulnerable people in those uh, terribly afflicted countries, I think we'd be doing a lot of good. And that's what Global Britain's all about. And, that, and that's what we're going to be trying to secure on top of the support for uh, the equitable distribution of vaccines uh, in terms of uh, the COVAX AMC mechanism. We've provided £500 million. That will produce uh, a billion doses again. Well, that's the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab. And the Foreign Office mm. saying it's an interesting calculation. More than 160 million people around the world are right now at risk of not getting vaccines because they're in conflict areas. And that includes Yemen, where, of course, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are involved. Also, South Sudan, where there's been a civil war going on and off for a while. Somalia, which has been in a state of semi-war for more than three decades. And, of course, Ethiopia, where we're now beginning to see problems, particularly in the Tigray area. All these people could be without any form of vaccine. It'd be interesting to see if anyone is prepared to do enough to force some kind of ceasefire uh, to get the vaccines. And then I suppose the question is, if you can force a ceasefire for that, why not get a ceasefire altogether? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Meanwhile, turning to Brexit news, the government is holding back its plan for evaluating the economic impact of new trade deals, which was prepared um, before Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed the post-Brexit trade agreement with the EU. So a source tells Bloomberg that this plan committing the government to regular evaluation of free trade agreements has been delayed. That is allegedly because ministers do not want the level of analysis applied to the trade deal that was done with the EU. Britain has said that it won't publish an impact assessment on the pact with the EU, although they have done similar analysis for other major accords. Roger, perhaps this is a temporary delay. We shall see. Perhaps there will be pressure to actually get that analysis. We know that just, what, six weeks into the post-Brexit era, there have been a lot of problems in terms of trade, customs trade with the EU. Yeah, many people think if there had been an evaluation, perhaps we wouldn't have got into this situation. But anyway, let's talk about British attitudes, because it's a new report by the British Foreign Policy Group. have found the UK is becoming increasingly polarised, with both parties straddling fragile coalitions on foreign policy and stark divides between Leave and Remain voters. Now, all this is something of a challenge to Boris Johnson's vision of a global Britain agenda. The study also revealed an increase in scepticism towards 
against China. Perhaps that's uh, a little more uh, explicable given recent events. Now, the report says China is regarded as a critical threat to Britain by 41% of respondents. That's up from 30% last year. Just 22% of Britons support Mm. the government pursuing any form of economic engagement with China. Of course, the problem, Caroline, is if we don't pursue any form of economic engagement with China, we could suffer a great deal on the economic front. Uh, Mm. And that is a time when, of course, the UK economy, as we know, is already stuck in a very difficult situation. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.